Hurling, we may from gravest author find to be of two Olympic games combined. There, strength of body, swiftness in the race. These qualities still are hurling's pride of place. Alike in each, the athletic youth is crowned, whilst with their praise, the distant hills resound. And now I think I may say something to you of the sports used among the Irish on their holidays. One exercise they use much is their hurling, which has something in it not unlike the play called Mal. I can remember clearly going over to the hurling field in Ratnewer, a field that the club would have hired out from a local farmer, and uh, you wouldn't get room to play in the field. There could be about 100... I remember one particular Sunday, Sunday there was about 150 players in the field, balls flying in all directions. It is a fine, manly exercise with sufficient of danger to produce excitement and is indeed, par excellence, the game of the peasantry of Ireland. To be an expert hurler, a man must possess athletic powers of no ordinary character. <laughs> The view of hurling and the hurling men, which I'll be giving in the next 50 minutes, is very much a view from the ditch. I'm not a hurling man myself, except in the sense that admiring Mozart or Picasso from afar off makes me a music or a painting man, and the comparison is fair enough. For if ever a game was an art form, then hurling surely is. Well, it's an art. I mean, really, it is an art. Uh, I suppose some people are born with it and some people learn. I don't know if there are any made hurlers. Thus, one of the great hurling artists of our time, Mick Mackey of Castle Connell. To him and a half a dozen other hurling men, great players and great followers of the game, I'm grateful for bringing my view a little closer and a little clearer. But if it remains a bit hazy or lopsided, the fault is not theirs but mine with, of course, my only excuse that to give a full view of hurling, even from the ditch, you'd need not 50 minutes, but 50,000. belongs to a song from County Louth, which we heard a verse of a few moments ago. It's called Emine Lianea Wawin, one of a set of four East Ulster songs about matches played around the beginning of the last century. Hurling matches? 
Well, a mine means hurling, doesn't it? Or does it? It's been argued that in the case of three of these games anyway, it actually means football. And, well, later on we'll be hearing how hurling can mean a dance. My point is that when an amateur starts dabbling in hurling history, he's liable to get his fingers burned, because until now there's been no really solid research published. However, that'll soon be remedied on the double, as two scholars are bringing out books on the subject in the near future, Brother O'Canny of the Irish Christian Brothers and Arto Milfowl. I'm referring, of course, not just to the recent history of the game since the founding of the GAA, but to the long, long story of its evolution and development, its ups and downs in popularity and status, from prehistoric times down to the 19th century. Long though that history is, however, we've to come down to the very end of the 17th century for our first full and reliable description of hurling. It's by a London bookseller, of all people. He was called John Dunton. Uh, not the friendliest of visitors to Ireland, he wrote of his experiences here in a series of letters under the title Tagland, or A Merry Ramble to the Wide Irish. But we'll forgive him a lot, because in the year 1699, he went to at least one hurling match, probably at Nace, and wrote home about it. One exercise they use much is their hurling, which has something in it not unlike the play called Mal. When their cows are casting their hair, they pull it off their backs with their hands, work it into large balls which will grow very hard. This ball they use at the hurlings, which they strike with a stick called common, about three foot and a half long in the handle. At the lower end it is crooked and about three inches broad. And on this broad part you may sometimes see one of the gamesters carry the ball, tossing it for 40 or 50 yards in spite of all the adverse players. And when he is like to lose it, he generally gives it a great stroke to drive it towards the goal. Sometimes, if he misses blow at the ball, he knocks one of the opposers down, at which no resentment is to be shown. They seldom come off without broken heads or shins in which they glory very much. At this sport, sometimes one parish or barony challenges another. They pick out 10, 12 or 20 players of a side, and the prize is generally a barrel or two of ale which is brought into the field and drunk off by the victors on the spot, though the vanquished are not without a share of it too. This commonly is upon some very large plain, the bearer of grass the better, and the goals are 200 or 300 yards one from the other, and whichever party drives the ball beyond the other's goal wins the day. Their champions are of the younger and most active among them, and their kindred and mistresses are frequently spectators of their address. Two or three bagpipes attend the conquerors at the barrel's head and then play them out of the field. At some of these meetings, 2,000 have been present together. They do not play often at football, only in a small territory called Fingal, near Dublin. Well, how is that for a sports report, Brother O'Canny? I do not think that it is an account of a, a hurling match, a single match. I think it is an account of hurling as he knew it at the time. He uses the word come on, which he spells, as far as I recall, C-O-M-A-A-N. Come on, obviously a southern pronunciation. And he has an account of a bouncing ball, what used to be referred to as a bouncing ball or the elastic ball, which is to be distinguished from the wooden ball, which did not bounce, of course, which was common in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, and in Britain generally. Now, this brings us to the question of was there one, more than one kind of hurling as there was more than one kind of ball? Now, 
you will have, I think, at this stage, we'll have to be satisfied to remember that virtually every village in Britain, and of course in this country, had its form of hurling. I would call them manifestations of the stick-and-ball game. And it was only over the course of centuries that forces, certain forces, came in and brought all these various local ways uh, together and harmonised them into a fixed form of playing. I would think, for my own part, that the, the landlord class did that in this country. Now, if you go to Britain, you'll find, at the very least, I think, ten different titles for what we would nowadays call hockey. There were at least ten different titles for it, and we had a number of titles for it in this country as well, of course, for hurling. One of these was Kamenacht, the other was Imoint and Boyle and so on. But um, I think myself that the landlord class drew these together and certainly for our major games did in fact give us one fixed type of game. Now when you say the word landlord class then you're talking mostly about the 18th century. I am you? talking virtually entirely about the 18th century. Yes. Um, as early as 1708 the first account that I know of of a hurling match appears in a Dublin newspaper, which of course would be a very tiny newspaper by our standards, called the Dublin Flying Post. This was a match played in the Curragh of Kildare between the men north of the Liffey and south of the Liffey, and I think, offhand, the number of men playing was either 27 men aside or 30 men aside. And throughout the century, the press continues to reflect this golden age of hurling. A few weeks ago, there was a grand match of hurling at Crumlin Commons between the provinces of Leinster and Munster, in which the former came off victorious. In consequence of this, last Tuesday, May the 31st, a chosen set from Munster engaged an equal number of their conquerors at the same exercise and made their utmost efforts to retrieve their honour, but all to no purpose. For Leinster, after about an hour's struggle, gained a complete victory. Southern powers in vain against East unite. The South is doomed to tread the northern flight. Gallia to Britain quits the glorious field. To Leinster, Munster ever forced to yield. That was from Faulkner's Dublin Journal of the 4th of June, 1748. And some nine years later, the Universal Advertiser announced this epic struggle. On Thursday next, the 29th, there will be a hurling match on Irish Town Green between married men and bachelors for 50 guineas a side, exactly at four o'clock. The green is to be corded. And how's this one for boasting? The greatest match ever hurled in Ireland will be played on the 8th day of September, 1768, between the provinces of Leinster and Munster for 68 guineas at the noted fair of Listoff near Erlingford. And the game was played in the most unlikely places as in 1775, Joseph Struth records. Hurling to the girls was frequently played by parties of Irishmen in the fields at the back of the British Museum, but they used a kind of bat to take up the ball and to strike from them. This instrument was flat at both sides and broad and curving at the lower end. I have been greatly amused to see with what facility those who were skilful in the pastime would catch up the ball upon the bat and run with it for a considerable time, tossing it occasionally from the bat, till such time as they found an opportunity of driving it back amongst their companions who generally followed and were ready to receive it. But the most splendidly coloured accounts of the game from the 18th century occur in the letters of Robert Devereux, a Wexford man, to his son in school in France. 
Now I endeavour plainly to display the various features of this warlike play. Just as an army has its van and rear, besides those who the brunt of battle bear, so here the lads must in three bands divide. The discipline's the same on either side. One score and one's the number, most complete. Seven guard the goal, while seven brave the heat of the mid-play. The other seven drive at the adverse goal and keep the game alive. See the field, now with gay spectators lined. The youths advance, each knows the post assigned, then takes his adversary by the hand and, with bare feet, impatient kicks the sand. While an old hurler brings the wished-for ball, destined that day to make bold striplings fall, then, clear the green, the green, is cried aloud. When every straggler mixes with the crowd, the elastic ball in air the veteran throws. With ardent wishes every bosom glows. To watch its fall, see how they all surround, while one more lucky takes it at a bound, and with a vigorous arm makes it fly and lessen to the sight it goes so high. Soon it returns, and now the party heats. What pleasure then to hear old men's debate. One cries, Don't you remember such a day when, above the rest, stout Brady bore the sway? And is there then, from Ballyhay to Gory, one person who has not heard some story of tall Ned Fortune, the other straight replies, the ball still watching with most eager eyes? A stripling now, with an unguided stroke driving aside, the crowd surrounding broke. Instant, one flies from each contending band, who strain each nerve, nor seem to touch the land. The patronage of hurling by the 18th century landlords, like their patronage of Irish music, was very welcome. It encouraged, but did not suffocate the game. Uh, the game remained very much of the people. Brother O'Canny? Yes, the game we have is very, very racy, very, very national, I think it is. And this was seen even before the Act of Union. It was already felt in the Dublin Conservative Press. And they stated it expressly that this was an intensely national game. And they referred always to cricket as the English game. Because although hockey is perfectly genuine, an English game and so on, it never really had, in, really had any status until the end of the last century. Hurling at that time was only beginning to regain a portion of the exaltation and the glory that was its, uh, its own one time, you know. In the middle of the 18th century, hurling was a very, very great game. Why did it decline? It declined because of 1798 and 1801, the Act of Union, the divorce between the people who made it and the tenantry who played it. The people who made it? Yes, the landlord class and the tenantry who played it. That was the end of hurling to all intents and purposes, and it had a struggling existence. All the forces of... Narrow-minded Sabbatarianism were now able to attack hurling freely and easily, and they did just that. And as well as that, of course, the greatest enemy that hurling has ever had, and still has, is rough play. And when the landlord class, with the leaden whips, left the sidelines of our hurling fields, the people, the peasantry, went wild, driven wild by ignorance and drink. And, of course, 
Hachano do the called Prostichus Agus Baltiachus, in other words, narrow minded parochialism. You see, and parish loyalty, the loyalty of the little village. It's a virtue, but it was a virtue that went wild. So this is the story. And the scope was much broader in the 18th century. Well, it was. I would say so. I would say so, yes. The landlord class, you see, couldn't go to England so easily or so frequently. They had to find their pleasure at home, and they laid wagers, huge wagers, and, of course, governed the teams their age. Indeed, had it not been for the Gaelic Athletic Association, the end of the 19th century might well have seen the end of hurling, a game which had survived invasion, depopulation, and plantation the Statute of Kilkenny and other colonial enactments, a game which belongs to the Irish folk memory and to our immemorial tradition, a game celebrated in the Thoin's account of the youthful deeds of Cuchulain, and again is celebrated in the stories of Fionn and the Fianna. After they had divided their forces, the ball was thrown into the middle of the field and a stroke was struck on it in the air, and it was not let touch the ground flying with strong blows of powerful heroes until it reached Dermwid, and he struck a stroke on it into the air that put it out of sight, and the second stroke put it two-thirds of the hurling plane. And when it was coming down again, he struck it the third stroke that put it out through the mouth of the goal. The second goal was then played, and Dermwid remained inactive until he saw the men of King Cormac winning. And when he saw that... Dermod went out amongst the Fenians and with three forward rushes sent the ball through the goal as he had done at first. The old stories are, of course, imaginatively wrought and embroidered. Still, Brother O'Connor warns us against confusing Avail with Avesh. The old texts have much to tell us about hurling. And when you move back to the Thoin and the Shanachas Moor and the very old texts, you are faced with what would appear to be Two games, Clehe na Luibe, are sometimes called the game of the loop, agus Clehe on Fuil, sometimes called the game of the hole, and mistakenly regarded as golf, because there is no earthly question that the game, whatever it is, is not golf. Now, I believe that Clehe na Luibe, the game of the loop, refers here, in, uh, uh, undoubtedly, I think, to the willow sally, the sally rod, that was driven into the ground like a U-nail and was approximately three feet wide. This was the goal. No man stood between the, in that short space and you could score coming down the field towards it or from the rear. And it's only when you bear this in mind that some of the older texts begin to make sense. I would form the opinion that Clohina Buibe was a more open game played on a machira or a plane and that, therefore, they had to insert the goal into the ground. This, I think, is to be associated with the Bas Hurley and Kaman Basha and the bouncing ball or an Leroy Luiminach. The other game, uh, the Cluchan Fielder, the game of the hole, I think is to be associated with a much tighter field and may perhaps be an older version of the game in as much, of course, as the very early inhabitants of the country would play very close to the little hamlets in which they lived. The pole, or hole, in Clehan Foyle may be taken to be a narrow gap in a wall or ditch through which lambs and other small creatures could pass. This was the goal mouth. Clehan Foyle was probably played with a jay hurley, more like a hockey stick or a shinty stick. 
two kinds of steak, two kinds of game. How long did they survive and where? Was there a north-south division between La Woe and La Chine? Between Ulster of the Little Fields and Strands and Leinster of the Landlord's Broad Acres? These are large questions and we'll come back to them. But today there is one hurling game played all over Limerick and Tipperary and Waterford, in Cork and in Clare, in Wexford and in Kilkenny, in Leash and Offaly and Dublin, in Westmeath and in Galway. One game, though a game of many styles and accents. Harry Gray of Leash and Eddie Kerr of Kilkenny talked to Tony O'Reardon and myself about it. Eddie Kerr? Well, Tipperary, I suppose, are more are close-tackling team who um, uh, be very difficult to analyse them now but uh, in fact they've changed I think over the last couple of years from the traditional Tipperary style but when I started playing there were close hard hitters who uh, did everything probably according to the book and won their matches that way um, they, they didn't um, rely much on on uh, they had their stylish players, no doubt, uh, but it, the, they mainly had good, strong hurlers and uh, didn't go in for any of the frills or anything like that. How would you compare them with Cork? Well, Cork, I think, are more uh, inclined to be compared with, with Kilkenny. They have the same uh, uh, style, I would say, and they, have, they play the ball quite a lot, rise it a lot, and... Um, played in the air a lot and I think they would be compared, uh, Kilkenny and Cork are quite similar in fact in style Another county with a sense of style is Limerick, uh, they're very neat hurlers and since the 40s when I've seen them they're very clean and sweet strikers of a ball Well Limerick are fast too, they're a fast team they're, they play a lot of the ball too mm. you know? yeah. they're nearly much like Cork, if you'd like to say that, yeah. Cork yeah. and Kenny, they're a fast team, a young team, fast team, they're good holders. Yeah. Of all the teams, who would you like to meet on the field? Who would... Well, I'd like to meet Kilkenny, I always like meeting Kilkenny, I always like playing Kilkenny. How about Wexford? Oh, they're quite good too, Wexford's are quite good, but they're two different <coughs> holding teams now, Wexford and Kilkenny. In the, 19, in the 1963 final, you got, I think, 14 points, that was against Waterford. Yeah. But can you go back a few years before that? I mean, I don't think you were playing against Waterford 2 when they beat Kilkenny. In 1959? Yes. Yeah, well, I, I came on the replay, in the replay, the drawn game, and I came on as a sub. Do you remember the drawn game? I do. I, I played minor that, that year, and I was watching the game. From I thought that was the greatest opening of any game I ever yeah. saw. The first yeah. five minutes were really hectic hurling, yes. Tremendous hurling, and I think there was the, uh, my memory of that time, that game, were Ali Welch's saves in early on, the, and the, the fast-flowing Waterford team. They had a they had a lovely style of hurling Waterford. I thought they moved the ball across the field towards goal, and um, they had some tremendous shots against. And Kilkenny were very lucky that. Ali Welch was there and in top form to, to save them and then Kilkenny got back and got ahead. I remember sitting beside a Kilkenny priest that day who'd come back from Australia after 20 years and I said to him before the match how did Harling compare now and then he said it's not a patch on the past and then after five minutes he gripped my hand 
and said, will they ever stick it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kilkenny looks as if it's always going to stick it. The game is very strong there all the time, isn't it? Young fellas still enthusiastic about it. Yeah, it's, it's moving around in that you had the parishes that were strong. Um, uh, you had the traditional parishes like Tullerone, Munkine, uh, Tullerone, and Tullerone are gone down a bit, Munkine are still there very much so. But uh, they haven't won a uh, county championship for a couple of years now. But well, they had um, a very lean period for a while. They had, yeah, they had, mm. they had. But there's teams coming in like, we'll mm. say, the Fenians, Johnstown now, who are a new team uh, in new area. Ourselves, the Roaring and Stigue won it one year, and we never had a tradition of hurling. So the, it's moving around in the parishes, but it's still very, very... And taking the county as a whole, I mean, take a match on a Sunday, a good match on a Sunday, would always attract a big crowd oh, in Kilkenny. When does a young fellow begin to be a hurler? When can he start to learn? You can come become a hurler at a very early age. I started playing, I suppose, about five. But when you, you it takes years, I, I suppose you, you're always learning. Harry will tell you there. You want to be with it from the time you, you go into school and yeah. you have to stay with it and practice and practice. How can counties like Leash and Offaly, Offaly, which nearly came in 1969, you remember they were doing very well, how can they come again? What, what, what does their coming depend on? Well, it uh, depends on training and uh, youth, of course, which is a very important thing. That's how can Kenny win so many matches. They win minor all learns, which is very essential because you must have a, a nursery sort of thing for to, to get the holders from, and that's the only way you'll get them is by winning minor all learns. Donald Foley, who played for Waterford, recalls his apprenticeship to the game. I was brought up in Ferrybank which is a kind of a, a Polish corridor of hurling. For hurling purpose, the parish of Sleeveru and Ferrybank is divided. Uh, Kilkenny have the, have the Sleeveru part and Warford have the Ferrybank part. And for religious purposes, all in the Diocese of Austria. So there's always a tremendous rivalry between Sleeveru and Ferrybank. And the area, and the area I think, produced some of the greatest hurlers in the country. People like Bobby Hinks, Dick Morrissey, uh, and there was Lockie Burden, and... Uh, Eddie Crew in recent years, who, who, who was one of the Waterford Centre Fieldmen in 48. Well, I suppose you ate and drink, drank it since you were young fellas. Oh, well, when we went to school in Ferrybank, my father, uh, if you hadn't your hurley going in, he was a teacher, if you hadn't your hurley going into the school, he, he would give you an odd look. And about 20 past 12 each day, he would say, well, have you, have you picked the teams? And then he would say, well, now, how to block again, how to hold a hurley, how to hook how to defend, and now go down and play it. And he would watch it for about 50, min 50 minutes before he went to have his lunch. And then in the evenings, I suppose... In oh, in the place. evenings, every back Pendlers field in Ferrybank, all the village were there, hurling all the time for about six, you know, from about seven o'clock on the way until dusk. You had, you know, everybody there had some connection with hurling, and it was a part of a... It was a way of life, and it, it was very much a community thing, uh, the Piers Piers Hurling Football Club was the big thing. We won Waterford Championships, and then Sleeve would win the Kilkenny Championships, and we would all have, have arguments about it. But the important thing was when Sleeve and Ferrybank got together in the South Kilkenny Schools League, then it was the real hurling ability came out, and we swept through all South Kilkenny. We won the championship in 1937, the Schools League, and you had some of the greatest hurlers afterwards were on, on that team. It was a magnificent team. And when we left to play the match, practically, uh, there were 
three or four buses left Freddy Bank that evening. From the top of the slip, as they say down there, all the buses were full of supporters and fellows on bicycles and people in Aston Carts even went up to Mullinavash where the match was played. It was a, a marvellous match and got fantastic accounts in the Munster Express and the Waterford News the, the, and the Kilkenny Journal by Schlieff Rua, Phil O'Neill, who was a great journalist. And uh, of, of course we won and uh, we brought home and the people in, in, up in Kilaspin, Kilmurray and Ballinamona and, and they were talking into the night about that match. And they still talk about it. And people like Eddie Crew, uh, who was one of the best hurlers, Johnny Hokey and all these fellas, they all remember that night in Fairbanks was one of the great nights of their life. Bonfires and all that, I suppose. Bonfires burned at the top of the slip and the slip ruined uh, and an author of Porter consumed. <laughs> Not for years. <laughs> Not for, we got lemonade. <laughs> we were brought in and we met Larry Marr and we met the whole lot of them. They all talked. And of course, Lockie Byrne was one of the great men. And there was a Lockie Byrne used to teach how to play hurling as well. How old were you then, though? I was just 14, yeah. Not so many miles away in County Kilkenny, Leo Houlihan was receiving his initiation into the hurling mysteries. I remember as a child on the crossbar of my father's bicycle travelling the long, mysterious seven-mile journey, past Treeline Flood Hall, where Henry Flood once lived, on to Noctofer, to see the legendary Lowry Mar for the first time, an initiation, a ritual of tradition. It's as if it were only yesterday that I was peering through a forest of legs, straining for a glimpse of the tall man, all bone and pies, balancing for the swing with a peculiar backward sway. He appeared to be at his graceful best, despite the frantic efforts of a dark, 18-year-old youth down from Carrick Shock. Then someone said, he's beating Lowry, and sure enough he was. For shortly afterwards, the youth I had seen, the new folk hero emerging to challenge the reigning champion, Jimmy Welsh from Carrick Shock, was to win his first All-Ireland. I recall the adolescent years at St. Kieran's, one of the schools, St. Flannan's, St. Peter's, St. Finbar's, St. Coleman's or others, where hurling is part of the social structure, an element of culture, an art to be observed, practised, revered. The vision of one autumn day comes back to me of a huge, huge young lad from Wexford, new to the school, pushing the other aspirant hurlers aside with great strength and landing the ball over the town wall again and again. Nick Rackard's career had begun. <laughs> 